Well, good morning. Um, welcome to Hope Community Church. My name is Graham Stolte. Uh, my wife Bree and I have been coming here for about two years, and we actually just had the joy of welcoming our first child into the world a little over two months ago. And I'm currently finishing up my degree at RTS, which is the seminary right down the road. Um, and I hope to be done, like Tripp said, in a little less than a year. And I'm also one of the interns here. And when Tripp told me uh, that I'd be preaching the ninth commandment, I remember thinking, oh man, um, I really don't know which one that is off the top of my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this is kind of embarrassing. Um, but I hope it's one of the cool ones, like murder, right? Um, so if you, like me, uh, don't, didn't know what the ninth commandment was off the top of your head, uh, that's okay, because we're in good company. And now that I've set the expectations nice and low, let's uh, continue our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. So our scripture this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 16 which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the gift of your word and for the gift of being able to come together and worship you and the gift of your community. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We ask, Father, that you would fill our hearts and fill this place with your presence, that above all you would show us Christ and all of his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this commandment, is this just all about perjury? Is God in the ninth commandment saying, if you ever happen to find yourself in court on the witness stand, make sure you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you me. Or, like the other commandments, is there just a lot more to it? I think the Heidelberg Catechism that Tripp read made that clear. And to quote Inigo Montoya, I don't think it means what you think it means. And in order to understand and unpack the ninth commandment, you have to step back and look at the reason that God gave his law, the entirety of his law, in the first place. As we've covered in the series, God didn't give his law to oppress and restrict the lives of his people. He gave the commandments in order to build a cohesive community. And the cohesion of God's community, this interpersonal, horizontal, relational aspect of it, is built on loving your neighbor as yourself. And in order to love others, we're called to deal and to treat others with absolute honesty. And the reality of this commandment, this prescription for our lives, means three things. That the truth sets you free, and that this new freedom is actually life-giving, and that you can find rest in what's absolutely true about you. Or to say it in a different way, honesty gives us freedom, life, and rest. And so how does honesty set you free, and does that even make sense? Well, first, let's peek at how honesty and truth have been misapplied in the past. Now, Old Testament society, like ours, was one that had a social hierarchy, you know, a kind of stratified community that meant, by definition, there would be some people who carried, whose word carried a lot more weight and a lot more clout and a lot more authority 
than those people of a lower class. And now it doesn't take much to imagine the incredible abuses that can happen when one person's word is taken as absolutely true, purely based on their status or their position. So what do I mean by that? Well, I'm sure that you've watched or maybe you've read a period piece that took place back when there were lords and ladies and landowning gentry and nobles. And in so many of these stories, you have a powerful person that commits an absolutely atrocious act against someone of a lower social standing. And you know, this person, the victim of this injustice, knows that they have no chance to bring a case against the person who hurt them. Why? Well, because their testimony, their witness, doesn't carry enough authority to give them justice. All that that noble person has to do is deny, 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 and they'll never face justice. They will never face the consequences for what they've done. And we sit there watching this, or maybe we're reading this, and it burns us up, and rightly so. We see something like that, and we practically yell out, how can they get away with that? I can't believe they're going to get away with that. Maybe you're tempted to throw something at the screen or rip your book in half uh, if it's bad enough. And then so we have to ask, well, how did we in the modern Western culture right the ship? Well, we just put the shoe on the other foot. In order to protect those without power or position or authority, we gave more authority to the little guy. Our culture has made the little guy's testimony to be above reproach regardless of whether or not it's true. But that hasn't really solved anything, has it? The basis for truth still rests on a person's power, their position, or their authority, but it's just on the other end of the spectrum now. Truth isn't the standard. Their station in life has become the standard. And that's what determines truth. And abuses of credibility still happen regularly, and we've only traded one set of problems for another. And this truth is why God set down his law. He leveled the playing field by applying his law with perfect equality and perfect impartiality. God's justice system is the only one where who you are, your power, your position, or your family name isn't what matters. The truth is what matters. And it's God's standard of justice that values everyone equally, from what the world would deem to be the least of us to the most of us. And it's his unwavering standard of truth that strives to create a community where everyone is valued and protected, a community where everyone's testimony is of equal weight. So then what does God say about lying? In Proverbs chapter 6, 16 to 19, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, and seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, it's very telling that out of that list, God has two out of the seven things that he hates are lying. In fact, he calls them an abomination, which means it's something that disgusts him. 
Then why? Why does God classify them that way? Well, because of how destructive lying is. And we'd be mistaken to think that being dishonest only applies to what we say. It can just as easily be what we don't say. It can just as easily be how we present or how we represent ourselves. So then we have to ask ourselves, why do you and I lie? Why are we so prone to inflate our own image or our own resume to appear more than we are? What are we trying to protect? Are we trying to protect our image or our pride or maybe our own perception of ourselves? So let me explain a little more. When you're about to take a picture, do you painstakingly clean up the background? Do you ever exaggerate stories to make yourself look better? Like maybe shave a couple strokes off of your scorecard? <laughs> or does that fish that you caught get bigger and bigger each time you tell the story to people who weren't there? Or are you mortified if somebody drops by the house unexpectedly and the house isn't perfectly clean? Have you ever taken credit for someone else's work? Or have you ever padded your resume? Well, why do we do these things? Why do we obsess so much over how we're perceived? Why are we so afraid of feeling found out? Well, our deepest desire is to be fully known and fully loved. And so then it makes sense that one of our biggest fears is to be fully known and then rejected. And maybe you're like me, or maybe it's true of you now, that your biggest concern isn't bearing false witness against anyone, but that someone would be a truthful witness about you. That they would tell the absolute truth about you and about what you said and what you've done. Now, in my case, I was about 16 years old, and I had spent the first two years of high school making sure I had the right friends, was in the right crowd, at the right parties, and most importantly, made the varsity football team. My image was front and center in my mind as my friends and I were all rounded up and brought to the police station. The police were investigating an armed robbery, and they'd gotten a tip that we did it. And I can remember sitting there at the station, and I was absolutely terrified that one of the guys wouldn't bear a false witness on our behalf, that someone would crack and they tell the truth. And they did. They told the truth, the truth that we were absolutely guilty. We did rob that store. And now everyone was going to find out and we were going to have to own what we did. And I was furious that I'd been found out. I was devastated that I wasn't just going to face the consequences for what I'd done, but that my image had been shattered. This carefully cultivated, crafted image that I had spent years creating for myself. And it was now tainted, and it was dirty, and destroyed. And afterwards, I tried to preserve my perception of myself by blaming everyone but the person responsible. That was me. And this self-honesty, this realization was one of the first things that I can remember as the Holy Spirit began to change my heart. 
that I was finally able to accept the truth about myself because I found an even greater truth in Jesus Christ. And that truth is that Jesus has done everything necessary to make me right with God. That he's taken away my sin and my shame. In Romans 8, we read that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I read that and I thought, well, if God doesn't condemn me, how can I continue to condemn myself? Why should I continue to condemn myself? And so when you actually begin to embrace the truth of what God says about you, you'll have the freedom to be honest, truly honest with yourself. And that's the same freedom that brings new life. But I'll put it a different way. You find yourself under immense pressure to look a certain way, to present yourself a certain way, or to have your life all together. Isn't that exhausting? When Matthew 11, Christ tells us that, come to me, all who, la- all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And it's this truth, the truth of love and acceptance in Christ, that frees you to say that I don't need to deal with other people falsely. I don't need to lie to protect my image or to avoid consequences for my actions. And I don't need to drag others down to build myself up. Because however messy my life might be on this side of heaven, Jesus Christ, God himself, isn't ashamed to call me brother. And he isn't ashamed to call you brother or sister. The God of the universe sees me as absolutely beautiful. So then how do we live after being set free? How do we bear a true witness? You know, the flip side of the ninth commandment. How do we bear a true witness? Well, we live as walking, talking testimonies to that freedom and the joy that we have in the truth. And as Christians, we know that we're supposed to evangelize and we're supposed to be telling people about Christ. But doesn't that seem kind of legalistic sometimes? We're quick to think that sharing the gospel is something we have to do. And we turn that have to do, you know, transformed out of a, something we get to do. And that attitude can become burdensome and oppressive. But I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that everyone enjoys telling people about the things that they love. And that's even more true if it's something they think the other person would love. Right? You and I are so quick to tell the good news about the restaurant that just opened up. Or the good news about the latest show that we've watched. Or the golf course we played. Or the incredible peach cobbler recipe that you use. Seriously, I could give it to you after the service. We're expected to convince people to try a new exercise routine or to use this or that landscaper. Or to convince people to enroll their kids in private school. Or maybe just to give Charlotte FC a chance. But how quick are we to share the good news of Christ? How quick are you to tell people about the joy that can never be taken away? And now some of you might be sitting there thinking, but I'm not a Bible scholar, and I haven't studied any of this in school. 
and I don't think I'll know all the answers to the questions that someone will definitely ask. And the great news is that we don't need to know it all. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is talking with his disciples, he tells them that they're not expected to know everything. Right? It's not for you to know these times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. The words of Christ himself say you're not expected to know it all. But just witness about who I am and what I've done. And we're true witnesses about people all the time. I mean, if you're honest, how easy is it to tell people how great your spouse is? Or how great your kids are? Or maybe how wonderful your friend group is? And for some of us, it seems like that's all we talk about. And incredibly, we're able to do all of that just because we know them. And we know them because we've spent time with them. And we can talk about the people we love without worrying about answering every little question or thinking that we need some kind of exhaustive knowledge about them. We don't need a, a degree to talk about how, uh, all the good that they do or to tell about who they are or why we love them. And in John 10, Jesus says over and over again that his sheep know him and that he knows us and that we hear his voice and we follow him. And if we know him, then we're more than qualified to witness about him. And so out of our love and gratitude for Christ and for what he's done and for who he is, we can show people true life, the life marked by the Holy Spirit's work in us. And Galatians 5 tells us that the Spirit will transform who we are, that he will bring out joy and peace, patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our lives. And so these things mean that by the Spirit, our entire selves become living witnesses to the hope and the truth and the assurance that we have in Christ. And what, what a relief, right? God says, you don't have to know it all. Know my son. Know what he's done for you and what he's doing in you. And let my spirit work in you and let me show myself through you. And now I hope it doesn't sound like you've been given a, some honey-do list. All these things flow naturally out of the rest that you find in what's absolutely true about you. And what's absolutely true about you is what Christ says about you. And normally the absolute truth, the unadulterated truth about us can tend to cause more than a little bit of unease and maybe even a full-blown panic. And it seems like rest would be the last thing that we'd find in what's absolutely true about us. But like we talked about earlier, one of our deepest desires is to be fully known and fully loved. But the idea of summing, someone knowing all the ugly details and all the rough edges of who we really are makes us doubt that those two things, being fully known, fully loved, are they even compatible? How could they be? And the only way it can be possibly true is if there's something even more true than that, something more true than your sinfulness, more true than the worst things about you. And in Romans 8, we read that who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, 
who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So don't you see? God's word says that because of my son's death, no one can rub your nose in whatever you believe are your worst qualities, your worst mistakes, or your ugliest sins. I alone am judge, and I will judge perfectly. And facing God's judgment is an absolute reality. The Bible tells us that it's appointed once for man to die, and after that comes the judgment. And it also says that all are laid bare and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Have we ever really thought about that? Being judged by God. About standing before the almighty creator of the universe. The God who knows everything you've ever done. And every secret thought that we've ever had. What chance do you have on your own? And now the good news is at this very moment, if you're his, Christ is bearing the truest witness on your behalf. Something even truer than your sinfulness is the truth that in Christ, you have become the righteousness of God. Because Christ is in God's courtroom saying, no, those sins, all of them, are mine. I paid the price for them. And I shed my blood for them. And I died for them. And it's this truth, the truth of what Christ has done, that motivated so many Christians to live their lives as a witness, to be an example to all of us who would live after them. Hebrews 12 says that, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's the peace they found in what Christ did that motivated these saints to endure so much. It's the assurance of his witness that gave them rest in the midst of so much suffering. And it was the example of Christ that made their life and their death a testimony to the love of God. And like them, we're called to look to Christ as an example. Jesus Christ, who despised the shame of dying a death he didn't deserve, the shame of taking on all the disgusting, filthy sins that weren't his, the sins that stained him to his very core and that made him to be sin, who knew no sin. So if we and all those witnesses are called to look to Christ, then what was Christ looking at? What was, what was his motivation? Have you ever wondered that? What was the joy that was set before him that motivated him to endure so much pain? What was the joy that moved the God of the universe to lay his own life down? Well, that joy was you. And that joy was me. His joy was rescuing us from the death that we deserve so that we would be his forever. I mean, let that, let that really sink in. That the infinite God of the universe, the God who lacked nothing, came to earth 
clothed himself in flesh, and he endured slander and hatred and persecution, and he suffered and he died to make you his, to claim you as his own. And the beauty of it is that it didn't stop there. The beauty of it is is that Christ is still working on our behalf. Hebrews 7 says that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So then how do we understand that? Well, it's in the same way that every single person in this room, every single person in the world is someone's child or brother or sister or parent. And that these facts will always be true. No matter what happens, it will always be true. And the same is true of Christ's witness on your behalf. It will always be true. And that means that what Christ says about you will be true forever. And his witness, this declaration of your total innocence, his testimony to your perfect righteousness, will be the truest thing about you when you stand before God. And it's this true witness that gives us the freedom to be honest, the freedom to be honest with ourselves and with those around us, It's the truth of Christ's witness that gives us a new lease on life. The same life that we long to show and to give to others. And it's Christ's witness which gives us the assurance and the only true rest on this side of eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the truth of what you've done for us. The truth of Christ's humiliation and his exaltation on our behalf, the truth of your word, and the absolute truth of his witness. We ask, Lord, that your word and your truth would dwell in our hearts richly, and that out of that truth, we'd move closer to you, be drawn closer to you, and by our witness, would draw others to the life that can only be found in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.